The land of the Hyperboreans, the country that extended beyond Boreas, the frozen-hearted god of snows and hurricanes, who loved to slumber heavily on the chain of Mount Riphius, was neither an ideal country, as surmised by the mythologists, nor yet a land in the neighborhood of Scythia and the Danube. It was a real continent, a bona fide land which knew no winter in those early days, nor have its soil remains more than one night and day during the year, even now. The nocturnal shadows never fall upon it, said the Greeks, for it is the land of the gods, the favored abode of Apollo, the god of light, and its inhabitants are his beloved priests and servants. Helena Blavatsky In the late 17th century, Japanese poet Matsuo Basho went on a journey from Edo to the northernmost part of the island of Honshu. He composed a travel diary of this period, often translated into English as the narrow road to the deep north. He was so astounded by the beauty of the region that in one particular haiku, he would declare that the birth of imagination and art must have taken place in the deep far north. As we have analyzed in the first episode, this fascination with the northernmost parts of the world, as having inspirational spiritual and aesthetic qualities, is quite common. For some, the northernmost part of the world seems to give life to one's spirit. Yet to others, it appears they ascribe even more significance than that which is merely symbolic to mystical lands of the north. Beyond the classical period, ancient Greek utopian mythology was not merely ignored or lost. In the Renaissance and onwards, Many classical texts noting of distant, exotic, faraway lands fascinated many, helping inspire numerous works of art. One notable example is Utopia by Thomas More. The phrase Utopia, which was coined by More, means no place in Greek, while also sounding quite similar to Utopia, Eutopia, meaning good place. The ancient Greek tradition clearly inspired More's general account of what constitutes a utopia through their writing on distant faraway lands, in this case being separated by ocean, with cultural, social, and religious customs that are ideal, or should in some way be copied. One such ancient story, previously unmentioned in this series, created by the classical Greeks that would inspire more to write Utopia, was Atlantis, an advanced civilization that existed somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. This is likely the most recognizable ancient Greek Utopian story in the modern era. In fact, According to a survey done by Chapman University, 57% of the American public believes Atlantis is real. I have said little to nothing about Atlantis so far, despite this, because the ancient Greeks did not care much about it. This story was made up by Plato, who even implicitly stated it was a fabricated pedagogical tool to help demonstrate that only Plato's idealized republic could possibly withstand an invasion by this mythical civilization. Aristotle, and other sources in antiquity who write about Atlantis subsequently dismiss the story as a platonic fabrication. Some writers rediscovering Plato's work in the Renaissance, notably, did not take nearly as skeptical a stance as the ancient world did to his fable. The age of exploration during this period led many wide-eyed explorers to attempt to find the mythical lands described by the classical Greeks, especially that of Atlantis. 
This is an interesting parallel, of course, given that much of the original mythologies built around these faraway utopias were also created with a culture experiencing a period of exploratory expansion. Following the discovery of the New Worlds, many, including Francis Bacon and Alexander Humboldt, argued Plato was actually describing the Americas. This theory, of course, had to somehow find a way to fit into the dominant material reality of Europeans during the age of colonization. The notion of terra nullius, or nobody's land in Latin, was a key moral justification for European colonization of the New World. If these large swaths of land were, in fact, owned by nobody, then there would be nothing wrong with occupying them, radically transforming their ecological makeup for the sustenance of large-scale monocultural farming and introducing a class-based industrial society into them. This notion is, of course, absurd, and attempts to erase the indigenous peoples who are on these lands and using them to sustain a way of life entirely alien to the Europeans' intentions for it. In a certain sense, the notion of terra nullius is quite similar to the original Hyperborea myth. This is not insofar as they are comparable colonial projects, but instead in the sense that they work to explain and conceptualize these set of activities while undermining their morally evil aspects. If the Celts of Italia had a history within Greece, then the Greeks would certainly be more justified having a history in Italia. If the Americas were not authentically being used or claimed by any peoples, then it would be irresponsible for the Europeans not to make use of them. Using a material analysis of the stories is crucial. It's not the case that Hyperborea or Terranulius led to these colonial projects being possible, but the other way around. The political milieu and the social forces that led to these colonial projects allowed these stories to become intelligible, and then prominent justifications for why it was acceptable for the Greeks to be in Italia and the Europeans in the Americas. To return to Atlantis, the notion that it was an advanced civilization that rivaled the military strength of even those in the old worlds may have potentially interfered with the notion of terra nullius, as this would be clear evidence that some of these new societies were most certainly quote-unquote using and occupying the land they lived on. This was particularly a problem for European encounters with the already existing civilizations of the New World, the Mayan and the Incas, as some speculated that these societies were remnants of the Atlanteans. A common justification for why even these societies were not properly taking use of the land was that, while they were descendants of the Atlanteans, they had subsequently fallen from grace and needed the guidance of enlightened civilized Europeans. This is a similar justification for the occupation of the supposed cradle of civilization in the Near East by European colonial powers later on. Regardless of the ideological inconsistencies with European colonization, the notion that the Mayans and the Aztecs were remnants of Atlantis was popular enough that those like pseudo-archaeologist Auguste Le Plongeon even attempted archaeological digs of Mayan ruins in Central America to prove this theory. He thought he had even identified linguistic connections between the languages of the Mayans and the ancient Greeks. Plongeon was, importantly, not the only one attempting to find similarities in origin between languages spoken in radically distant locations. This trend was necessarily connected to a biblical assertion of the origin of all languages. The notion that, for instance, all human languages were descended from Noah, the idea that humans were monogenic descendants of Adam, and the belief that there was a subsequent dispersal of humanity as a result of the Great Flood, were accepted ubiquitous assumptions by many in Europe. In fact, the general assertion that all human languages had a mother tongue was an assumption commonly made well into modernity. 
In the 17th century, for instance, Andreas Jäger, a German who would have had absolutely no evidence for his beliefs, said that, An ancient language, once spoken in the distant past in the areas of the Caucasus Mountains and spreading by waves of migration throughout Europe and Asia, had itself ceased to be spoken and had left no linguistic monuments behind, but had, as a mother, generated a host of daughter languages. Descendants of the ancestral language include Persian, Greek, Italic, the Slavonic languages, Celtic, and finally Gothic. Part 2. The Indo-European Homeland Around the 18th and 19th centuries, partially as a result of the expansion of European colonialism, those who still subscribe to these beliefs, of a universal mother tongue as portrayed in Genesis, found a set of problems with their worldview. The problem in this perspective is related to the many archaeological and textual discoveries made by Europeans in, for instance, the Indus Valley. Ancient Sanskrit religious texts such as the Vedas, which were crucial in, for instance, the formation of Hinduism, challenged the claims of exclusivity that the Judeo-Christian religions had in relation to providence. Some argued these ancient texts predated the Flood and owed nothing to either Jewish or Christian religious texts. The notion of a world-historically significant set of religions that were potentially more ancient than even the Old Testament was quite disturbing to the conservative elements of the British intelligentsia. This is where Sir William Jones comes in, an Anglo-Welsh aristocrat who lived in the 18th century. He was a prodigal language learner, or polyglot, and in his education, he had learned languages like Ancient Greek, Latin, Persian, Arabic, and Hebrew. Jones was also quite the Orientalist, and was fascinated with languages and cultures from the East. Upon traveling to Calcutta, he became proficient in Sanskrit, which is, to oversimplify greatly, a classical language that no one speaks natively, but is quite crucial to many Hindu cultural practices. It is the language the Vedas are written in, for instance, so it's spoken by two or so million people as a second or third language. Think of this language almost like ecclesiastical Latin. Upon learning Sanskrit, Jones wrote that, The Sanskrit language, whatever be its antiquity, is of a wonderful structure, more perfect than the Greek, more copious than the Latin, and more exquisitely refined than either. Yet bearing to both of them a strong affinity, both in the roots of verbs and the forms of grammar, than could possibly have been produced by accident. So strong, indeed, that no philologer could examine them all three without believing them to have sprung from the same common source, which, perhaps, no longer exists. There was a similar reason, though not quite so forcible, for supposing that both the Gothic and the Celtic, though blended with a very different idiom, had the same origin with the Sanskrit, and the Old Persian might be added to the same family. So after noticing similarities between Sanskrit and other languages he knew, Jones provided a saving grace for those worried about the theological conclusions of the discovery of the Vedas. The idea that the people who wrote the Vedas were entirely disconnected from the ancient civilizations of Egypt, Greece, and Rome was discounted by this linguistic evidence found by Jones. Jones is certainly not the first to notice this similarity between Sanskrit and other languages, but he's British, so he gets all the credit. It is also not a surprise that the Christian world had, in its minimal contact with South Asia before modernity, been attempting to find similarities between languages spoken in South Asia 
and those spoken in Europe. Filippo Sassetti, a Florentine who traveled to South Asia in 1585, noted of some similarities between Florentine Italian and Sanskrit. He noticed that, for instance, God is Deva in Sanskrit and Dio in Italian, Seven is Sapta in Sanskrit and Set in Italian, Eight is Asta in Sanskrit and Otto in Italian, etc. It is important to highlight, though, as we saw with Plongeon's discoveries of similarities between Mayan and Greek, that a minor degree of similarity between two entirely alien languages is not uncommon. And Sassetti, who likely only had minimal access to Sanskrit and did not find altogether that many similarities, was likely arguing a priori and attempting to justify his biblical understanding of the world. These similarities mainly happen in virtue of the fact that there are only so many sounds that the human mouth can make. For instance, the old Japanese word for woman is womina. The Mbaram word for dog is dog. And the Turkish word for able is able. English, old Japanese, Mbaram, and Turkish have nothing to do with each other and do not have the same mother tongue that eventually diverged. And so this degree of similarity between languages can clearly happen coincidentally. There is no doubt that Jones was carrying much of the same European Christian baggage as someone like Plongeon. But regardless, Jones had discovered something that was far more systematic than a few common words being similar. Jones's discovery of a similar mother tongue between English, Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit, as well as a collection of numerous other languages, did not necessarily vindicate the Old Testament account of an originating mother tongue for all that were subsequently lost due to humanity's dispersion. It was clear at this point to most serious European intellectuals that not all languages could possibly share a mother tongue to the European ones. This discovery was, ironically, a product of Western European research into non-European languages made easier by colonization. Instead, a discourse that derived from Christian theology was molded and adapted to a new understanding of the world shaped by the material realities, there's that word again, of British imperial expansion in South Asia. Instead of all languages having a mother tongue, and subsequent homeland in which this mother tongue was spoken, only the languages of, for instance, English, French, Italian, Greek, Farsi, Hindi, Sanskrit, and others that Jones had found to be structurally similar had a common ancestor. Jones did not argue that those who spoke an Indo-European language that would evolve into languages like Sanskrit and Hindi were the first to inhabit the Hindus Valley, as would have potentially fit the biblical origin myth. Instead, he claimed that at some point, a group of Indo-European peoples connected to this previously stated common homeland invaded the region and set themselves up as the ruling class. Jones noticed a root word that carried into many different Indo-European languages. In Latin and Greek, it seemed to reference a noble person or noble act. In Farsi and Old Persian, it functioned as a self-identifier for those who spoke the language. In Sanskrit, according to Jones, it was both a self-identifier for one who spoke Sanskrit and engaged in Vedic cultural practices, and also meant one of noble social standing. The supposed common word that Jones found is usually referred to in English as Aryan. This is the origin of the use of this word in English. Jones imagined that these Aryans left the Indo-European homeland and invaded northern India, setting up a caste-based social system in which their language and culture were that of the nobility, and the indigenous inhabitants were the lower caste. Jones claims that these Aryans had lighter skin than the local inhabitants 
and set up a political system contingent on racial hierarchy. For Jones, the eventual reason this Aryan society crumbled was due to miscegenation between the upper and the lower classes. It is obviously essential to take note of the political context Jones is developing his theories within. This was during a period of rapid colonial expansion by the British into the Indian subcontinent, and the notion that there was an invasion of white people into northern India millennia ago that allegedly enriched the culture and the religious life of the region was an effective way to build a mythology of shared history between British people and the indigenous populations of the region. Following Jones's theory, all the British were doing was mirroring this previous Aryan conquest. So it was, according to this mythology, not the case that the British were merely belligerently conquering foreign peoples they had no shared history or relation to, subjugating cultures they did not wish to understand and abusing them for material gain. Instead, they were following in the footsteps of their ancestors, reaffirming their cultural roots, stepping in as the noble caste they once were. According to them, a noble caste was what brought the region to its cultural, intellectual, and philosophical peak in the first place. Jones's hypothesis about the similarities between Sanskrit and his own mother tongue functioned quite a bit like the hypotheses made by the Celts by Greek colonists. It was a way of inventing a history for the British in the region, who spoke a language with the same mother tongue as Hindi and Sanskrit. The colonial expansion of the classical Greeks is incredibly dissimilar in many ways to that of the British, yet this analogy is still valuable. Jones is technically writing about an authentic phenomena, that of the Indo-European language group, yet he is twisting this phenomena to fit a specific political need, the domination and exploitation of those in the Indian subcontinent. The similarities Jones found between Latin and Sanskrit were not a coincidence, of course. Most scholars no longer use the term Indo-Aryan, as Jones had, given its obvious later association with Nazi Germany, but instead refer to this group of languages that all share the same mother tongue as the Indo-European language family. This family comprises essentially all major European languages, minus essentially Basque, Hungarian, and Finnish. It also includes Farsi and Northern Indian languages like Sanskrit and Hindi. The Indo-European language group is in fact the largest in the world with about 3.3 billion people being native speakers of one of the many languages contained within it. To be clear, this does not mean Jones was right about most of what he was saying. The idea of an Aryan conquest into northern India, which was followed by a racial caste-based society, is absurd for many reasons. One can be seen upon analyzing the Vedas, the religious script Jones had used as evidence for his Aryan invasion theory. There is no reference, for instance, in this script, to these Aryans being lighter-skinned than the other inhabitants of the region, or even being a distinct ethnic group. A phenotypical marker such as skin color did not hold the political significance it does now, and would not have defined a cultural identity in a way that it sometimes does today. Furthermore, there is explicit evidence within the Vedas of cultural assimilation of non-Aryan groups, who became Aryan because they took up the cultural practices and languages of those who wrote the Vedas. One thing Jones was seemingly correct about is the existence of an Indo-Aryan homeland. The implication of these languages being a part of the same family is that they all have the same mother tongue that began within a certain discernible geographic region. Those who spoke this tongue must have migrated outwards and influenced the languages spoken in massive swaths of the old, then subsequently the new world. The question of where this homeland lies is also quite political. Another fascinating element of this language group is that through studying their similarities, linguistics has, 
over literally hundreds of years of intensive labor, been able to reconstruct what is now known as Proto-Indo-European, or Pi for short. Pi can help indicate to us some of the characteristics of the Indo-European homeland, their culture, the environment they likely lived within, etc. And the hunt for this Indo-European homeland has been long and extensive, with some more likely candidates, but no conclusive answer. Both crank writers and legitimate ones have spent quite a long time attempting to determine where this singular culture and language originated before splitting off into Germanic, Romance, Indo-Aryan, and other language groups. The most likely and generally most accepted location of the Indo-European homeland is known as the Kurgan Hypothesis. This is the argument that their homeland was somewhere around the Pontic Steppe, so southern Russia and Ukraine. As one may have by now assumed, the question of where this homeland lies is quite political. There is a certain prestige that may be given to a group of people if they inhabit the region the Indo-Europeans initially lived in. For instance, on a YouTube video discussing the Indo-European hypothesis, which noted that the Kurgan thesis was the most likely, I stumbled on a highly liked comment that was quite mad at the implication that the Indo-European homeland was in southern Russia. They even linked to a website called Wrong Proto-European that argued that the Kurgan hypothesis could not be correct, given how obsessed the Proto-European culture was with bears, boar, deer, and wolf, as seen in their reconstructed language, when southern Russia is not a place in which those animals inhabit. Instead, this random website seemed to argue it was the Danube Delta region where Pi developed, so eastern Romania. This dismissal of the Kurgan hypothesis is absurd, as seven or more thousand years ago, right after the Ice Age, when Proto-Indo-European was spoken, there most certainly were bears, boar, deer, wolf, etc. within southern Russia and the Pontic Steppe. The Danube Delta theory has also been essentially firmly discredited. Another example of the political nature of the locations of the Indo-European homeland I found was on a very poorly argued video that said that it was, in fact, modern-day Armenia where the Indo-European homeland originated. A hypothesis that is, despite the quality of the video, very possible. Under this video, someone commented, Beautiful and interesting video. All Indo-Europeans owe respect and support to Armenia where our ancestors came from. Sorry for letting you down in your war for Artsakh. Hopefully you will get it back soon. The implications of this are absurd, as the Indo-European culture is so old that even if the Indo-European homeland was in Armenia, the modern Armenian nation could not claim a special attachment to it. Think of it like the ship of Theseus. So much has altered and changed since 8,000 years ago, Groups of people migrating away, and so moving into the region, affecting its language, culture, and the DNA of the people, that Armenians would not be especially Indo-European. This is especially true for languages and cultures near the Caucasus. But that, of course, does not matter for geopolitics. A final potential location for the Indo-European homeland, with very significant political ramifications, is referred to as the out-of-India hypothesis. This is, of course, a full reversal of Jones's thesis. The group that subscribes to the out-of-India hypothesis, also known as indigenous Aryanism, views the Indo-European homeland as originating in North India, with these Aryan groups expanding outside the region to conquer locations such as Afghanistan, Iran, and most of Europe. It is important to understand the different general motivating factors that drive the out-of-India hypothesis. For the most part, this view has a reputation for being a saffron-tinted view of the world essentially meaning it is associated with the far-right Hindutva political sympathies. 
This political ideology was essentially brought into mainstream Indian politics by current far-right nationalist Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Many have, quite reasonably, described Hindutva politics as being essentially fascist. Robert Frickenberg describes it as a, quote, melding of Hindu fascism with Hindu fundamentalism. It is, of course, understandable why far-right Hindu nationalists would like to believe that the Indo-European homeland began in northern India and Pakistan, for the same absurd reasons other nationalists would like this homeland to be located approximately within their borders. Interestingly, the Aryan invasion thesis, previously described by Jones, essentially only functions in the recent academic literature on Indo-European presence in northern India as a straw man by those who subscribe to the out-of-India theory against those who say that Indo-European homeland was not in India. To quote Michael Witzel, a vocal critic of Hindutva authors who subscribe to the OIT, out-of-India theory, the recent denigration of this shift by some OITers, such as Elts, is entirely disingenuous. He insists on calling any migration or trickling in an invasion. However, immigration slash trickling in and acculturation, which works both ways, from newcomers to indigenous and from indigenous to newcomer, is something entirely different from a military invasion, or from overpowering and or from eradicating the local population. The scholarly literature on the introduction of Indo-European language into the region of northern India is far from the racist, absurd assertions of Jones and other early colonial British authors on the subject, who use the similarities between English and Sanskrit as a justification for colonization. To quote from Witzel once again, The revisionists and indigenous overlook, however, that such refutations of an immigration by racially determined Indo-Aryans still depend on the old, 19th century idea of a massive invasion of outsiders who would have left a definite mark on the genetic setup of the local Punjab population. In fact, we do not presently know how large this particular influx of linguistically attested outsiders was. It could have been relatively small, if we apply Erhardt's model, which stresses the osmosis effects of cultural transmission. Instead of a massive invasion of ethnically distinct Aryans, the introduction of the Indo-European language family into northern India was likely a product of a migratory influx of Indo-Europeans into the Indus region following a larger-scale societal collapse in the Indus Valley that took place in approximately 1900 BC. Following the crumbling of this civilization, for whichever reason we're not quite sure about, many local inhabitants fled eastward, leaving the Indus plains much more open for Indo-European cattle grazing. These Indo-Europeans did not have the cultural influence they did in northern India due to their ability to conquer and subdue the indigenous population. But instead, they offered a way of living, semi-nomadic cattle herding, that the local populations were better off copying following the aforementioned civilizational collapse of the Indus Valley civilizations in 1900 BC. This is why the Vedas note of different tribes and groups of people around the Indus Valley becoming Aryans by taking up Aryan cultural practices. While the indigenous Aryan theory is certainly not historically sound, and it is often associated with far-right Hindutva nationalists, there is something romantically appealing about many of the indigenous Aryanist dilettantes who are not far-right, but support the notion that the Indo-European homeland was in northern India for anti-colonial purposes. This makes sense as a position to hold if one considers that, throughout the centuries since Jones's discovery of the connection between European languages and Sanskrit, it has been almost exclusively European academics debating the validity of the theory of Indo-European migration into India. 
Some indigenous Aryanists wish to reclaim their own history and have some authority over the discourse about the peoples who wrote their most important religious texts. In Indo-Aryan Controversy, which probes both sides of this discussion, between and against the Indo-Aryan homeland being in northern India, Edwin Bryant writes, The alien power opposed by the anti-imperialist voices of the indigenous Aryan school is intellectual. It consists of the construction of early Indian history by Western scholars using their superior technology in the form of linguistics, archaeology, anthropology, philology, and so forth. The version of historical events arrived at by these means was then imposed on the native population in hegemonic fashion. Indigenous Aryanism, from this perspective, is an attempt to adopt this same technology to challenge the colonial power, or the heritage it has left behind, to test its foundation, to see how accurate the Aryan migration hypothesis actually is by examining it with the same equipment, the same disciplines of archaeology, and so on, that were used to construct it in the first place. Much of Bryant's work is quite sympathetic to indigenous Aryanism and the non-Hindutva political motivation that many intellectuals and dilettantes take for arguing it, poking holes in the attempts by scholars, generally in the West, to conclusively rule out northern India as a potential homeland for the Indo-Europeans. Although it is important to note that even within the book dedicated to defending these indigenous Aryanists, Bryant does admit that the historical evidence far more than likely suggests the Indo-European homeland is not in northern India, only that to conclusively rule it out on the same evidence is not fair. So it is technically within the realm of possibilities that it is in northern India, but it is by far not the most likely theory. One example of the reasons for this is if you look at the plurality of different language groups, that will generally indicate a region in which Indo-European was more likely to have originated. So in Europe, for instance, we have a multitude of language groups that are Indo-European, like the Slavic, uh, the Baltic, Germanic, uh, Romance, etc. Whereas in Northern India, you only have one. There's far less diversity in these language groups, which again is an indication that some, somewhere like Northern India is not the Indo-European homeland, but it doesn't conclusively rule it out. As I have hopefully highlighted so far, the question of the Indo-European homeland is incredibly political, especially as it concerns Indian politics, and it has been handled in various ways by Indian writers as a result of this. Indian nationalist Bal Tilak would be a particularly influential thinker who would do exactly the opposite of those who subscribe to the Out of India hypothesis for very similar political reasons. In his book, published in 1903, titled The Arctic Home in the Vedas, he argued that Aryans were not indigenous to northern India, but instead the North Pole. Tilak does something quite similar to the modern indigenous Aryanists of the contemporary period, appropriating Western institutions of knowledge for anti-colonial purposes. He argues that the Aryan race is a distinct ethnocultural group that can be identified through, for instance, skull shape, but in doing so, he contextualizes these Aryans as invaders who are not authentically indigenous to Europe or northern India. One of the pieces of evidence Tilak cites for his thesis is analyses of Vedic hymns and other stories from various Indo-European cultures that speak of migrations away from Arctic locations. One of the examples he gives is Hyperborea in ancient Greece. Remember, Greek and ancient Greece are both Indo-European languages. And so, we have come full circle back to our original analysis, with a modern resuscitation of the Hyperborea myth intertwined in the discussions of the Aryan race and its potential origins. But Tilak is not the only one to posit 
that the Aryans came from the far north, and many of those who agreed with him about the location of the Indo-European homeland had radically different political intentions than him. Arthur de Gobineau is perhaps the most important 19th century theorist to bridge the gap between Jones's account of Aryans to Adolf Hitler's. He is arguably the first to say that the Aryans are a master race who are stronger than all others in virtue of their biology. In an essay on the inequality of the human races, he argues that the Germanic peoples are the most pure-blooded Aryans. One may be surprised to see him say this, given the fact that he's French. But his Germanophilia comes, likely, primarily from his disdain for the French Third Republic and his legitimist monarchist political sympathies. Shadowing Jones's view, Gobineau agrees that the ten greatest civilizations of the world were in some way started by Aryans, and that the distinctly non-Aryan civilizations were once conquered and given civilization by these Germanic Aryans. He also imagined these ancient Aryans, who were responsible for founding Greece, Rome, Persia, and others, as a blonde race of tall, beautiful, fair-skinned people. According to Gobineau, one is able to understand the extent to which an ethno-religious group can build and maintain an advanced civilization based upon how much Aryan blood is in their DNA. Karl Penka was an Austrian anthropologist who built on much of Gabineau and others' ideas about the Aryans. Following the notion that the Aryans are Germanic, he proposed the Aryan homeland to be in modern-day southern Scandinavia. He subsequently imagined that the Hyperborea of the ancient world was a reference to these people. Penka's theories and the theory of other Austrian thinkers who agreed with his hypothesis were quite explicitly anti-Semitic and viewed their constructed Aryan race, like Gobineau, as superior to others. In a similar sense that there are two radically different political strands of indigenous Aryanism, a Hindutva strand and a leftist anti-colonial one, we can also note two different strands of this Northern European hypothesis. One is an appropriation of Western institutions of knowledge like linguistics, anthropology, archaeology, to assert an independent Indian identity against the West, so Tilak. The other is a similar utilization of these institutions of knowledge to preserve European racial ideology and political domination over European colonies. Part 3 Theosophy. The study of Arianism was non exclusive to 19th century race scientists. Helena Blavatsky was a significant, controversial, and prolific occultist born in 1831, who was a seminal spiritual figure in the Theosophical movement and later, more broadly, in Western esoteric spiritualism. While she was explicitly anti colonial and an Orientophile, much of her work existed within the previously mentioned milieu of Arianism and esoteric rediscoveries of ancient Greek faraway lands. After getting married to Nikifor Blavatsky at age 17, which she would explain was a product of her attraction to Nikifor's supposed love of magic, Helena would escape this marriage by traveling the world. There was essentially no reliable account of her life during this period. As she traveled the world, Blavatsky allegedly repeatedly encountered a group known as the Masters of the Ancient Wisdom. Starting with her encounter with the Master in Istanbul, then Constantinople, he instructed her to travel across Asia Minor until she eventually reached Tibet, 
where she would study Buddhism and uncover the many hidden secrets of Oriental spiritual knowledge, staying near the Tashi Lumpo Monastery. This is most likely bullshit, and there is no verified evidence she even made it to Tibet during this period of her life. Regardless, the mythologies she builds around her early stay in the Far East would substantially affect the burgeoning theosophical movement that she will eventually help champion. According to her book, The Secret Doctrine, during her alleged stay in Tibet, she learned how to commune with these masters of ancient wisdom, who were supposedly clairvoyant, telepathic, could dematerialize on command, and could project their astral bodies outside their corporeal ones. They taught her about the origins of the universe, or cosmogenesis. She explains that the cosmos, and everything contained with it, comes in and out of existence in intervals. Everything comes out of the primordial ooze, and eventually, one day, goes back into it. The active periods, such as the world as it exists now, are known as manvantaras, and the passive periods, when everything slithers back into the void, are known as pralayas. These two phrases are taken directly from Hindu cosmology, in which there is a similarly cyclical understanding of the world. This is not a surprise, given her general attitude towards the East and its supposed collection of esoteric mystical knowledges that Western science cannot attain. Following this cyclical understanding of time, Blavatsky's work was dedicated to better uncovering the secrets of these previously existing Manvantaras. This process is cyclical, but, importantly, also evolutionary, with the human race evolving from previously existing races in different cycles. This may appear Darwinian, but following the period of different cosmological cycles, each root race exists for a few million years before evolving, not biologically through something like natural selection, but instead spiritually. According to her, the four previously existing root races only existed on now-forgotten continents. The first root race, is referred to as the etheric one. These beings were purely ethereal, meaning they did not have concrete bodies, but more so existed in the realm of vibes. They also reproduced asexually, by splitting off like amoeba. They only had a single sense in order to communicate, which was hearing. They did not have touch, for instance, as they were not physical beings that could touch other physical beings. They were imagined to have lived on the mystical Mount Meru, a spiritually significant mountain range for Buddhist and Hindu cosmology, which is imagined to be the center of the universe. The second root race was the Hyperboreans. This group had full physical bodies and reproduced by budding. They evolved out of the etheric race and subsequently gained the capacity to hear and touch as they were now physical beings. Blavatsky places the existence of Hyperborea in the northernmost realms of the world, so northern Canada, Russia, Kamchatka, etc. She explains that the reason this region was known to the Greeks as being entirely sunlit, yet within the northernmost part of the world, was because of polar shifts. This means that, according to Blavatsky, Hyperborea was quite tropical during this period, and thus regularly visited by Apollo, the sun god. Blavatsky was quite fond of merging oriental and occidental myths. Imagining that combining the supposedly unique truths contained within these two worlds would produce a more comprehensive understanding of cosmology. She is essentially attempting to draw out a truth about the origins of the world through these ancient peoples, imagining that modern scientific understandings of the past, which are generally deemed superior to all else, actually remove a certain crucial aspect of the truth. Of course, this is also pure projection. 
and Blavatsky and others within the Theosophical movement can accurately be described, following Said, as Orientalists. This term is not necessarily a moral condemnation by Said, although his analysis is, of course, contingent on highlighting how constructing a dichotomous and homogenized other in the East is connected to ideological instruments of domination. Outside of his analysis of Orientalism as a potential tool of colonial domination, Said also mobilizes the term to describe both an intellectual field or tradition, that of Oriental studies, and a general philosophical tendency to view the Orient as epistemologically separate from the Occident, the West. There are even some Orientalists, specifically those within the intellectual field, that Said praises. Maxime Rodensid, for instance, is celebrated by Said in Orientalism for a, quote, methodological self-consciousness, an ability to break out of the generally constricting confines of the Orientalist disciplines. This is all to say that the term Orientalist is not merely a moral condemnation, although in many cases it is, but instead a technical term with specificity, a specificity which is often lost by many contemporary leftists when it is merely reduced to a pejorative. Blavatsky and her theosophical movement is most certainly Orientalist. Specifically, following Said's analysis, she is Orientalist in the sense that she views the Orient as a relatively unified other that values mystical, spiritual, esoteric forms of knowledge as opposed to the modern, western, rational, objective, scientific viewpoint. Even if Blavatsky is praising this mystical eastern world and rejecting the western one, to posit this distinction is itself a product of her western perspective. And this type of Orientalism can often, as I will highlight, end up strengthening Orientalism as a colonial form of domination. The third root race was of Lemuria, a proposed previously existing continent between Madagascar and South Asia, which would supposedly have explained the presence of lemur fossils exclusively in these two locations. Blavatsky and the Theosophists did not care that this scientific theory was no longer taken seriously, of course, and incorporated this sunken continent into their mythology. Theosophists imagine the Lemurians to have lived sometime around the Jurassic period. They were born out of the Hyperborean race through sweat. These Hyperboreans produced sweat drops that matured in the sun and produced eggs that the Lemurians popped out of. Initially, the Lemurians were hermaphroditic and reproduced by themselves, but eventually split into two distinct sexes and reproduced as we do. This group was imagined to have abandoned Lemuria as it began to sink, and they would come to inhabit much of sub-Saharan Africa, modern-day Sri Lanka, and southern India. As one might have expected from 19th century Europeans, there was also a belief by prominent theosophists who followed Blavatsky's general analysis that sub-Saharan Africans and Dravidians were partially descendant of this third, less advanced root race. This is an excellent example of where a theorist like Blavatsky and the work she inspires can help reinforce European colonial tools of domination, such as race science, the belief that the colonized are generally inferior, etc. Even if she herself is attempting to use an Orientalist position to empower the Orient. It is important to note that Blavatsky's own account of race was not associated with this later, more crudely Darwinian account of the evolution of root races. Blavatsky saw these races as developing spiritually, and physical characteristics were not less advanced in the earlier races. Additionally, the notion of different races among humans that signify different cultural and intellectual capacities is not how this concept is mobilized in Blavatsky. Blavatsky's use of the word race was explicitly against the traditional Western understanding of different groups, 
with identifiable phenotypical markers that signify their cultural and intellectual capacities. Despite this, as I've highlighted with the association between the less evolved Lemurians and those with darker skin, Blavatsky's theosophical notions of race are appropriated by the traditionally racist European views of the world. The fourth root race is the Atlantean one. The Atlanteans had both psychic spiritual powers as well as an advanced civilization. They were referred to as almost human by Lavatsky and had the capacity for language and culture as we do. Many of these Atlanteans were also giants and were subsequently responsible for things such as Stonehenge. As a result of the Atlanteans being too powerful for their own good, they abused their capacities and doomed their continent, causing it to subsequently sink. Blavatsky's account of Atlantis, and more generally, the common modern conception of it that one may find on, say, the History Channel, was based on the works of Ignatius Donnelly in Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. Donnelly resurrected the notion of Atlantis for a modern audience, arguing that it was an actually existing continent, and that Plato was not lying, and that it was the homeland of the Indo-European, Semitic, and Turkic peoples. The previously mentioned Plongeon who's obsessed with finding evidence that New World civilizations were Atlantis and in some way culturally connected with the Old World, was also directly inspired by Donnelly's claims that the Greeks, Phoenicians, Hindus, and Scandinavians all owed their history to the lost world of Atlantis. Blavatsky's Atlantis is, of course, different from Donnelly's, but like other esoteric spiritualist texts, she's able to integrate certain elements of his bizarre pseudoscientific insight into her larger theory. The final existing root race, which is present during our current cycle, is the Aryans. The Aryans descended from the far north, from some of the surviving Atlanteans, after the first great flood that wiped them out. This is also a notion that is directly influenced by Donnelly, who also perceives the Aryans as owing their heritage to the advanced civilizations that lived on Atlantis. These Aryans are not similar to how someone like Arthur de Gobineau describes them, insofar as all human beings are a part of the Aryan race and not a specific, supposedly superior, ethnocultural group. The use of the term Aryan to refer to humanity as a whole within Blavatsky is quite jarring, especially for our modern ears considering the association with Nazism. This discussion of different races, and the most powerful currently existing race being the Aryans, unsurprisingly led to racist appropriations of Blavatsky's work. Part 3. Ariosophy. The most influential, explicitly right-wing, esoteric movement influenced by Blavatsky and Theosophy was the Ariosophy movement, which was most prevalent in pre-war Austria and started by Guido von Liszt. Liszt and some of his Austrian compatriots, such as Liebenfeltz, helped construct a modern Germanic paganist movement built on the esotericisms of Blavatsky, racism, and anti-Semitism. In 1902, Following a cataract operation that almost blinded him, Liszt reportedly saw a vision of an alphabet made of Germanic runes. These runes supposedly opened his third eye, a phrase Blavatsky also uses, and became the key to reviving lost magical practices previously known to the supposed Germanic Aryan race. This pagan movement, and the fetishization of Germanic runes alongside it, we will later see appropriated by the SS and other Nazis. Liszt glorified ancient Germanic tribes and their mystical knowledge, while attempting to revive the supposed practices that gave these ancient Aryans their power. He also delved into prophecy writing and foretold of the strong one from above, 
who had saved the Aryan race from its supposed Jewish oppressors. It turns out there were a lot of people in Austria around this time that were fond of Liszt's writings, and the Guido von Liszt Society sprung up in Vienna. They modeled their club around Liszt's idea that ancient Germanic cultures had an aristocratic class of magical priests known as Arminen, and they wished to revive the occult practices that gave these supposed ancient Germanic peoples their magical powers. Jörg Lanz von Liebenfeltz then later broke off from the Guido von Liszt Society and began his own secret Viennese club that borrowed many things from the Theosophical Secret Societies of Blavatsky, as well as the anti-Semitism and pan-German nationalism of Liszt. This group would attempt to uncover the wisdom handed down by the ancient Aryans and would aptly be called Ariosophy. Among other things, Liebenfeltz believed that modern humans were a product of interbreeding between an ancient Germanic Gottenmenschen, or super race, and the quote-unquote lower races, who were sexually perverted subhumans that were, in incredibly unimaginative form, also physically shorter than the Aryans. In a viewpoint strikingly similar to what Jones and other serious intellectuals argued a hundred years prior, Liebenfeltz believed these non-Aryan subhumans were the natural subjects of the Aryans, and that this older state of affairs must be restored. Pre-war Germany continued to stew in the slime of occultist anti-Semitic secret societies, with Ariosophists like Hermann Pohl making the German Orden in 1912. Five years later, in 1917, there marked a crucial schism within this group between a more insular occultist faction and an explicitly political group. The Munich branch of the German Orden, which was stocked mainly with those in the occult wing, became led by adventurer Rudolf von Sabatendorf, who gave the society a facelift, renaming it the Thule Gesellschaft, or Thule Society. Under Sabatendorf's leadership, the Thule Society increased its membership by sevenfold. The Thule Society also created a political party through the new support it gained by post-war German far-right nationalists, known as the Deutsche Arbeiterparty, or DAP, or German Workers' Party meant to target the more conservative elements of the German working and middle class. In 1919, an Austrian-born painter stepped into one of the political meetings of the DAP and got into a heated discussion. Those in the DAP were so fond of him, they invited him to join the party. That Austrian painter's name? Adolf Hitler. The DAP would be an incredibly crucial post-war breeding ground for Nazism to officially take shape. Hitler's newfound prominence within the DAP would make him come to the attention of influential and important members of the Thule Gesellschaft and, more generally, those in far-right politics within Munich. Many early members of the Nazi party were subsequently drawn to him through his prominence in the DAP. Those like Goering, Hess, Himmler, Hans Frank, Gottfried Feder, and others. Through Hitler's prominence in the DAP, he would also become acquainted with Diedrich Eckhart, who Hitler later described as the spiritual heart of the Nazi party. Eckhart was deeply involved in Ariosophic Bavarian circles and would greatly influence Hitler on the philosophical direction of the Nazi party and on his speech crafting skills. Hitler would eventually reform the DAP into the NSDAP, or the Nazi party. To quote Greer's New Encyclopedia of the Occult, while many factors came together in Germany in the 20s and 30s to unleash Nazism on the world, the contribution of Ariosophy and certain other elements of the Western occult tradition was not a minor one. While Hitler himself was not particularly interested in the occult, 
joining the DAP for purely political reasons, other important early members of the Nazi party most certainly were. Heinrich Himmler, for instance, took his esoteric obsessions with the origins of the Aryan race with him into a position of power in Germany. Himmler's rise to a powerful position in the Nazi party led to a brutal, influential member of government who explicitly believed the ancient Aryan race had magical powers and originated on the lost continent of Atlantis. Himmler helped plan and finance many archaeological expeditions across the world to find evidence of the Aryan invasion that supposedly took place across much of Europe and Asia through the Anhenarb, a think tank who was beholden exclusively to Himmler. The Anhenarb would fund various archaeological research groups and projects all under the pretext of proving Aryan and Germanic supremacy across the world. An important aspect of essentially all these archaeological and anthropological investigations into ancient Aryans and Atlantis is that they either proved absolutely nothing or actively went against their main thesis. Hermann Wirth, another member of the archaeological projects who co-founded the Ananarb, suggested that Atlantis was originally quite high up, and so the best place to find remnants of where the first Aryans fled to after its sinking was places like the Himalayas. During their trip to Tibet, facilitated by the Ananarb, they supposedly found conclusive evidence that the locals had Aryan genetics through the bunk science of phrenology and skull measuring. Another theory for Atlantis, put forward by Edmund Kiss, a German archaeologist and eventual SS commander, was that Atlantis was actually in modern-day Peru and Bolivia. Nazi expedition to Bolivia was never funded, but the notion that Tuanaco, a pre-Columbian archaeological site in Bolivia, was evidence of Aryan activity in the region became quite popular in early Nazi high society. Party newspapers published supposed conclusive evidence that Tuanaco was a Germanic city and that its architecture was emulated in early Nord and Germanic archaeology sites in Europe. This is essentially directly inspired by the pseudo-archaeological discoveries of Plongion. While most of the archaeological findings by Himmler were not particularly useful, and his obsession with Iron Age Aryans embarrassed some of the conservative members of Nazi high society, this esotericism was not simply nonsense and had a very specific ideological goal. Himmler attempted to use these archaeological findings to justify the Holocaust and the mass murder and political suppression of dissidents. He, for instance, used archaeological findings of preserved bodies in bogs in Northern Europe, dating back to the Iron Age, as evidence that ancient Aryans participated in the practice of murdering homosexuals. He got this idea explicitly from the Anenhab and one of its archaeologists, and used this supposed evidence, which is entirely ludicrous as there's no indication the bog bodies pertain to a practice related to killing homosexuals, as a justification for killing homosexuals in modern-day Germany. The Anenhab also took place in the looting of Poland following its invasion by Germany in 1939. Museums in Poland were looted of any supposed Germanic artifacts to be put in SS members' own personal collections. They would help facilitate another similar operation in 1942 in Crimea, paying special attention to the German Goths that used to live in the region. Some of these esoteric beliefs and findings would even have an effect on Hitler's view of the world, potentially shaping Nazi foreign policy. Himmler had a theory that every so often, a Russian leader would emerge who had somewhat more Aryan blood than the rest of the Russians, who all had trace amount of Aryan blood within them as they supposedly descended from the Nords. He viewed both Lenin and Stalin as comparable to Genghis Khan in this sense, 
as they unified a supposed Asiatic horde against the Western Germanic peoples. He says, Woe to the European, Germanic, Aryan human beings every time that, over there, such a one has emerged, capable of organizing and leading armies and powerful forces made up of this mass of subhumanity. Interestingly, he viewed the development of these Russian leaders as inevitable, while he did not view the development of a counter-Germanic leader, so someone like Hitler, as equally as likely. The pessimism Hitler may have expressed about the probability of an Aryan leader to unite the Germanic peoples may have been an attempted ideological motivation for those on the far right in Germany to organize. Hitler was seemingly sympathetic to this viewpoint, and in a talk during the war, he said, It's important for the future that the Germans don't mingle with the Poles, so that the new Germanic blood may not be transmitted to the Polish ruling class. Himmler is right when he says that the Polish generals who genuinely put up a serious resistance in 1939 were, so to speak, exclusively of German descent. Himmler's esotericism also affected his intentions in the East. According to plans drafted by Himmler for a post-German conquest of the Soviet Union, three new colonies would be set up for settling by the Germans. One in the Baltic, to mirror the early Germanic crusader state, one in the Pontic steppe, to mirror the Germanic Crimean Goths, and one in Leningrad, to mirror the early Nordic fiefdoms that would later become the Rus. Himmler had plans to entirely depopulate these regions of the local Slavic inhabitants and colonize them with Germanic peoples planting trees to emulate German forests over approximately 20 years. Himmler imagined that this would make these locations truly German again, and could help restore the Aryans to their previous dominant status across Eurasia, as is archaeological evidence from the Ananerb had to him proven. Obviously, these plans, while inspired by Himmler's esotericism, were not impossible without it, as the notion of Lebensraum would be possible without believing that the ancient Aryans came from Atlantis. Nevertheless. This is where esotericism eventually found itself. Many of the ideas produced by the Ananab and other Nazi pseudo-archaeological esoterics remain popular for neo-Nazis today. In fact, oftentimes, Germanic runes are used to subtly signal membership or allegiance to the far right. I've also done an analysis on my Patreon, access for $2 a month, on how these collection of ideas have made it into modern-day fascist propaganda and memes if one wishes to see how these ideas are subtly reappropriated. I was firstly interested in doing an episode on Hyperborea and the development of ancient Greek mythology into Nazism after seeing what I can best describe as an SS Hyperborea schizo edit, also analyzed in the premium content. And as I dug deeper into why a small clique of relatively influential fascist meme makers were obsessed with this, I realized it was far more important to Nazi ideology than I was previously aware. There is much to this subject that I have not been able to get to in this, as I realized that 9,000 or so words was probably enough. But if one is more interested in this general topic, there will be a premium QAnon Anonymous episode where I delve more specifically into Nazi occultism and Aryan racial ideology at some point soon. I hope you enjoyed uh, this new sort of form of episode making. I will likely also go back to doing some more analysis of Marx and probably get to the 15th or so chapter of Das Kapital, because I know you all like that as well. Obviously, follow me on Patreon for the, the premium episodes. There's nothing premium to this one. It's just a, an early release for $2 a month. Uh, also, for $5 a month, if you want the script for these, I put them there, as well as on my Substack, which is the same. It's about $5 a month. And I hope you liked this. And I will see you all next episode.